0: to a special episode of Inside the Lens. I'm your host, Don Kamareczka and this is the deep dive show uh, on the Photo Geek Weekly network where we pick an expert, and the expert is good at maybe one thing or many things. We've had scientists, we've had engineers on, and I believe this guest checks both of those boxes as well as entrepreneur and more. We like to talk about things that don't normally get discussed in the photographic space, the behind the scenes, the, uh, you know, lifting up the hood and seeing all the moving pieces that make the machine work. And so with me today is Larry, if I pronounce your last name, Tiefenbrunn, is that correct? Perfect. <laughs> Larry Tiefenbrun is here, uh, who is the founder uh, behind Platypod, and he's not only a uh, a mechanical genius with the stuff that he comes up with. Those are my words, Larry. Please accept them humbly. uh, But he knows the ins and outs of marketing and crowdfunding campaigns and how to make a splash in an industry that has already matured. So I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Thank you for being here with me today, Larry. Well, Don, thank you so much for having me. It is truly a pleasure and an honor.
1: We've now known each other for a few years and kind of met through Kickstarter. I think we were running simultaneous Kickstarters at at some point. And uh, I certainly learned some things from you and I learned a lot from you about macro photography. Uh, I've read
0: your entire book cover to cover and a wonderful book it is. And uh, thank you again for having me. I mean, my pleasure. And thanks for reading the book. Not many people like go cover. It's not a novel. So you don't really have to read every page. But I uh, genuinely, genuinely appreciate the fact that you did. Um, You know, let's go back to the beginnings. Let's start there because Platypah didn't exist. And then it did, you know, and it started with an idea. And where, how did you do it? I, I'm just gonna throw that out uh, out to you because i want to I want to absorb this to see where this began and how the initial successes were.
1: Well, Don, I've been aside from being a physician, I've been an avid photographer before I was ever a physician from my teenage years. We're talking almost fifty years now. And uh, oh gosh, I just love taking pictures of every kind, every genre. I've taken formal classes. I've read just about everything. There was, in our days, we had some wonderful photography magazines. Sadly, there's, those are dwindling and almost gone uh, these days. But I found myself a few years ago, together with my wife, taking a hike down the Navajo Trail in Bryce Canyon. And I took a tripod with me. I wanted to take a compact, I won't name it, you know, those twisty, bendy tripods, and when I stuck it in my camera bag, I realized that that displaced the amount of volume that normally would be taken up by a telephoto lens. And frankly, I would much rather take my telephoto lens with me than that tripod. Well, I took a full sized <laughs> traveler's tripod with me, hanging off my belt. We marched a thousand feet down into the canyon, got some beautiful pictures. Yes, we took selfies, not from an arm's distance away, but from about 20 feet away, so that we got some beautiful landscape portraiture type uh, images. And then came the hike back up the canyon. and it was difficult. And I literally ended up having to go see a cardiologist when I got back from vacation because it was not easy. So I went looking for some kind of heavy duty black tripod. I was sure I could find something. Uh, I, I like to shop at BNH uh, photo. Uh, online and in the store in new york and they have I've about 200- 200 store
0: uh, pardon me I, i've never been to the bnh oh store. it's an ex- I think it's an experience. to my wallet
1: <laughs> next time you're in new york it's quite an experience anyhow um uh, they had 250 or more compact tripods listed but not a single one was flat and they were practically all limited to between one and five pounds and frankly, with a heavy DSLR and a, uh, a 70 to 200 millimeter f2.8 zoom lens, uh, you exceed that limit. And the twisty bendy tripod I had after a few years, every time I put a camera on it, it just started bending and keeling over uh, almost any time I mounted something on it. So I decided, you know what, maybe I could do this. I have a friend in the metals business, and in the middle of the night, one night, I woke up, took out a piece of graph paper, and graphed out a plate with a bolt in it. Originally, it was going to be a stainless steel bolt. And when we made our very first prototype together with my friend in the metals business, and we went and anodized that plate, guess what happened to the stainless steel bolt? What happens when you anodize stainless steel? It melts. It <laughs> melted. It like I have some amazing pictures from that. And I said, hmm, this is not going to work. Well, the anodizer informed us that when they dip items into anodizing solution, they use titanium hooks to do that with because the titanium does not anodize and it does not melt. So instead, we put a titanium bolt in it, which was also nice because that adds some really nice strength to it. The bolt was welded, actually welded through, screwed in and tightened into the plate and then polished over. So when you look at the back of a platypod, you barely can see a little circle where the bolt is, but you cannot access that bolt. And that bolt will stay in there with up to between 100 and 300 pounds of torque uh, with no problem whatsoever. So that's where we started. I made this for myself. We put it to market. I took it to Photoshop World, Scott Kelby's Photoshop World 2015, and they flew out like pancakes, like hotcakes. People absolutely loved it. And I said, hmm,
0: we may have something going here. And I
1: think it all kind of grew from
0: there. And and so then from there, I, I understand that you've had a, a number of iterations of the, the same design, the original Platypod and then the ultra and the max and the current extreme, Well, the ultra is still current as well, um, all sorts of iterations based on that same fundamental concept. Uh, and I I agree that, you know, as you have continued to see how people use them and the, the design, uh, the use cases that come to mind are things that you might not have thought of before and you can reiterate. And for every one of those through the uh, the, the many years that you've been doing this, there's been a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, did you have one for the very first platypod? No, that, that actually
1: launched through very, very standard methods. We did magazine advertising, uh, and we went to trade shows and I have to say, I really miss the trade shows because when you interact with users, they give you a lot of feedback. Why don't you have this? Why don't you know, our, our original plate was a very simple flat plate with, um, Actually it had two bolts in it. I had a 3 uh, three-eighth inch bolt and a quarter twenty. That became a problem because with some of the tripod heads, the quarter twenty was blocking the tripod head from spinning on if it had a, a big lever sticking out the side. So we, we decided to abandon that in favor of using adapters to go down the quarter twenty. We also had three positions on that original plate to put in little spikes so that if you were on rock or concrete, the plate would not slip, it would grip very well on those surfaces. But we listened to the customers. Customers said to us things like, Hey, I wish I could strap this onto things with can you put some belt loops or something like that on it? Some customers said, you know what? I have a really big setup. If I put this on soft ground, it's going to keel over to the side because the original one was the size of an iPhone 4 basically. Uh, and so the the next step was to make a larger plate. Uh, it was about five by eight inches. It was akin the size of an iPad mini. And we employed some belt loops in there. We put in more positions for spikes. We used longer and sharper spikes. And these are all things from feedback from customers and professional photographers. Yes, I've done patents on what we have, but I was more concerned about listening to professionals and less worried about uh, non-disclosure agreements and things like that because I wanted the product to be right so we vetted out like crazy and the platypod pro Max which was our first Kickstarter was wildly successful and five star rated all the way through on uh, on Amazon I think we we by the time we finished selling that we we had over uh, 250 to 300 um Amazon reviews almost all five star uh,
0: rated so let's go through the mechanics of a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, you've done them, I've done them. From from my perspective, I know it's a lot of work. I mean you you basically have to um, you, you basically have to dedicate a hundred percent of your time to managing promotional material and to manage the ability for uh, a larger audience to be seen from this, so that you could have uh, what one would describe as um, going viral. I guess that that's the goal. You want to make sure that you have this biggest punch in the shortest period of time that you could possibly muster. And And for me, that would mean uh, like writing articles for websites like uh, the now soon to be defunct. uh, uh, By the time this is uh, out there, it will be defunct DP review uh, or Petapixel, or F stoppers. And, you know, I would try to to look everywhere that a potential customer could be and get this message in front of them within a a 30 to 60 day window. Do you do the same thing? So, yes, but with help. I Listen, I, I am a
1: full-time physician. I work five days a week, uh, Sundays through Thursdays, and I knew I needed help. Initially, uh, we had a fellow named Noah Christensen who had worked at Rangefinder uh, Magazine. He was actually my ads rep there, and I took him on uh, part-time to help me out with advertising and with marketing. Eventually, Noah went on to uh, to work Uh, at uh, at Verizon, I believe it is. He's an executive there now. And uh, Skip Cohen of Skip Cohen University, formerly president of uh, uh, Hasselblad USA and was president of Rangefinder Magazine himself, Uh, Skip took over as my uh, marketing chief and helps me with with a lot of this. Uh, Also, uh, we have uh, Hilmar Smith on our team. Who, uh, who does a lot of our social. So yes, Don, you're right. You need to do all those things. Uh, in my case, it was a little bit m- too much for me to take on uh, myself. So I employed some help.
0: If I had help, I probably, and you know, in hindsight, I, I should get help the next time. You know, looking at how much effort that is and how little sleep I get during that time period, and how many ideas are rattling around in my head that I know i'm not going to have the time to execute them all on my own. Time is a finite uh, uh, element in life, so but you know you, you go through this and and the momentum starts to build right you you hit the goal the the, the funding goal is hit you know you're going to be producing this thing now. Um, I've done uh, stretch goals and, uh, you know, uh, extra add-ons and modifications. And and through the, the design process, you often have some what-if moments that come into your mind, uh, especially when that buzz starts to build and people start to comment and say, oh, well, this, this looks great. I could use it for this or I could use it for that. And, I, and you, you must have been thinking at some point in your mind when reading through those comments, it's like, I, I didn't design it for that. Uh, I'm I'm glad it's going to solve that problem, but I had no idea that was a problem worth solving.
1: Yes, my my favorite one was uh, I think it was Rich Harrington who suggested that uh, I put a bottle cap opener uh, in, in in that, and I said no, Rich, we we, we have we kind of have our limits here. It's a photography tool, not, not a beer opening tool.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, hey, but you I, know, but, you you
1: know do... Don, you're right. You have to listen. You have to listen to your base, and and I think you've done the same in developing uh, your books and your Kickstarters, and you've made so many revisions as you've gone along, and you have to look at it yourself, and you've got to be critical of yourself, and if you can't take criticism from yourself or from others, you're in the wrong business here, because most, as you know, most Kickstarters fail. The vast majority of Kickstarters fail, and mostly because... The, the makers did not vet out well enough, or they didn't listen to criticism, or they weren't critical enough themselves. I looked at Platypod myself as a tool. What would I want to use to start with? And then listen to what other people want to use, and then you try to pack in as many features as physically and fiscally possible.
0: Yes, <laughs> fiscally possible. That's, that's important to consider because, as you mentioned, a lot of them fail. Um, I've bought into a number of Kickstarters that never got out the door uh, what was the, one of the most recent ones where I got a letter from a lawyer, uh, because the company became insolvent was uh, Lumapod. That's what it was. It was going to be this, uh, tripod that kind of expanded as a pole. And then it had some strings like guy wires that came down to stabilize it. And it was like a neat idea. I threw some dollars at it and it never came to be. Um, and you know, with, with my last, uh, kickstarter my my macro photography book it was substantially delayed uh due to the pandemic and i caught a lot of flack for that i mean i, I knew it was going to be completed uh it and was you know i had the dead. same
1: experience donna i'm pardon me for interrupting but i had the same experience also with the platyball uh because oh, let's uh, talk about the platyball
0: yeah well let's talk <laughs> about your your the flack you got for it first and then we'll dial it back and start where because this is the coolest thing that i think you've ever made
1: it was also the most difficult thing I ever made. I, listen, taking a, a a plate, designing it to handle a lot of features, putting in the proper holes in the proper places and things like that. And now we have one that with with folding feet. That's relatively easy. And that took a matter of a few months. Platiball took five
0: years of development, starting with a, a lump of Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that the final design for the uh, the platyball, and I encourage everybody, that the links will be in the show notes to where you can see all of the wonderful inventions that uh, Larry T and the gang have come up with over the years. But the, the platyball, I think, is one of the most ingenious because falling in the same um I guess idea space of building something that isn't available on the market, that just doesn't exist. You're not reinventing the wheel. You're not doing something that somebody else has done and you found a better way to do it. Nobody inverted a ball head like you did in this particular case. What was the why? Again, go, going back to the, the, the standard idea of why did was there nothing that suited you, or did you think that something like this could be picked up by another manufacturer? Um it's it's a really cool idea, but where'd it come from?
1: Okay. Well, th- there's a lot there's a lot to unpack here. And if you're interested in hearing the design story, I think I think everyone will be interested in hearing some stories uh on this. Uh, first of all, let me correct you. Uh there were two other ball heads that I had seen that had an inverted design. One of them I actually purchased. It was made by Arca. I think the Arca P30, P, uh, P0, sorry. And it's a very nice ball head. I wouldn't say anything uh, bad about it. Uh, it was rather expensive at the time and it's still rather expensive. And frankly, ball is somewhat expensive because it's very hard to make this kind of a ball head. So I put together a wish list in my in my head of you know what what do I wish I had in a ball head and what do I think customers would appreciate having so so I looked at a few issues number one yes inverted design I thought was top of the list and it was amazing to me that there were only two inverted ones the the Arca one and one made by um, uh, I think Novaflex uh, also made a, an inverted uh, ball head. The benefit of an inverted design is that you don't have to go and level your tripod or your platypod in our case because the problem with tripod heads that have a panning base at the bottom of the head is that if the if that base is not perfectly level as soon as you go to pan, your lens swings first up and then down and you don't get a level pan. So you must go through two stages. You've got to level the the tripod legs or the base, and then you've got to level the head. That was issue number one. Issue number two is I've had tripod heads with three knobs on it, one to set base tension of the tripod head, the other was to set the uh, panning, to lock the panning, and the third would be to lock the ball. And very often the three knobs were almost the same. And when you're looking through the uh, viewfinder and trying to focus and trying to zoom and compose, and then you're fumbling for which knob to use, to me, that was very inconvenient. And the other issue with knobs was that, you know, I have a tightly packed camera bag, as as I think most uh, pro and uh, photography uh, uh, enthusiasts have. And if you put, let's say, a plastic-made flash now a lot of lenses are made in plastic. You put that up against the knobs of a tripod head and accidentally somebody steps on your bag or sits on your bag, you're going to go and crack that piece of equipment with those knobs that are protruding. And also knobs take up an unnecessary amount of empty space in between them. So I wanted to get rid of knobs. I wanted to go with a push button method. Um, I had uh, appreciated way back when the pistol grip type of heads that were around, but the problem with the pistol grip is a they were either locked or unlocked. There was nothing in between where you could still position uh, with a with a medium tension. And the other problem with the pistol grip was that invariably, as soon as you, because the way it worked was you squeeze the grip to unlock the unit, and then you let go of the grip to lock the unit. And invariably, when you let go of the grip, the head shifted. And I know this is something that you've talked with me about, and it's very important to you that once you begin the locking process, that it stays in position all the way through.
0: Well, for macro photography, especially, um, you know, for a landscape uh, or portrait photographer, it might be a nuisance. Um, And you have to kind of learn how to um, pre-position the tripod like a little bit higher so that when you let go, you know, it's going to like sag down a tiny bit in order to fall into roughly the, the framing that you're thinking of. But for a macro shot, you can't do that because your field of view is so tight that if there's any sag, then your subject is going to be completely out of the frame and you don't want to be guessing because it's never going to be guessed correctly. Um, And so having this ratcheting system, I think, is really helpful. And and of course, you mentioned um, about uh, panning. Uh, The very first tripod head that I had was from Enduro, and it was a a five-way pan head uh, that was able to accomplish with unbelievably complicated mechanisms and multiple knobs that had the, these little sliding locks so that you could uh, bend them so that they could fold in and then you could take them out and then you have to fumble with all of this and that for both of the knobs and then you're there uh, spinning about five different things before you can finally get the and it worked don't get me wrong it worked but I almost never used it because it was so horribly inconvenient to use. Um, and so, you know, of course, uh, the, the Platyball obviously solves all of those problems. It's got right. that um, interesting thing for, uh, you know, solving the, the the sagging issue with the ratcheting design. And in fact, I've even used it on uh for some video stuff where it's partially uh, uh it, there's a bit of tension on it but it, it's enough that i can fluidly kind of move it and and adjust the framing like that for a video sequence i'm not sure i, I, I know it's not designed for that but if that's just no but that, th- that was an
1: important that was an important thing to me i wanted to be able to pan smoothly no it's not a video head because to make a video head you need fluid motion both in the panning and and in the tilting we don't have uh, you know, fluid tilt. But it was important charge that I gave to my engineer that I wanted that panning head just to give you a nice little amount of resistance so that you could gently push the camera and get a smooth, even pan without jerking, without it speeding up and slowing down so that you could use it for some video panning if you wanted to, but also to make your panoramas very easy and pleasurable to use. So the next the next item on the list was leveling. <clears throat> and one issue that I saw is that practically every tripod head that has a bubble level on it is makes that bubble level almost unusable because the level either ends up too high or too low depending where your tripod is. You really have to be right on have your eye right on top of the level for it to be perfectly leveled. You can't use it sideways, so as soon as you flip the uh, tripod head size- sideways, a bubble level is fairly useless unless you have two levels uh, on there. At night time it's invisible, and I thought what a great idea would it be to have an LED level indicator on on your tripod head that you could see from any angle and that would work in any orientation of the head. And that's exactly what we did. We incorporated in the Platyball Elite model, a level just like that. It works in six different directions, uh, straight up, left, right, upside down, above your head, down looking straight down. And the, the firmware in there readjusts to each and every position and you can see it in bright sunlight and you can see it at nighttime with no difficulty whatsoever. And for, we had some photographers, because again, we vetted this out. Some photographers said to me, hey, I level with my eyeballs. I don't need a, a level. I said, okay. And others said to me, I actually have a built-in leveling indicator in my camera, and I don't need that, and I would rather save some money. So we made another model called the Platyball Ergo that deletes the level. Everything else is the same there, but we tried to accommodate both photographers. And interestingly, Don, the ratio of sales of Platyball Elite to Platyball Ergo is approximately two to one.
0: Really, that's interesting. Uh, and, interesting, and I know that the uh, the levels are becoming more and more commonplace. But I like to have a nice, clean view on the back of my camera and not be concerned about remembering which button brings up the level, where the level can be easily there, right on the tripod, and I don't have to be micromanaging the user interface of the camera itself. Uh, if I can make things simpler, I'll take simpler. But uh, y- the two different versions—one with electronics—and electronics is tricky. Um, How many revisions did you go through? Oh oh my God, five years worth of (laughs) revisions. It it,
1: it took a lot. We employed a company out of Ohio that does electrical engineering. They figured out my entire plan. I wanted to also incorporate some battery saving features. Uh, I did not, I specifically, and I've been asked about this, I specifically did not want a rechargeable battery because having a rechargeable battery would mean that you'd have to take this out of your camera bag, go and plug it in somewhere, and you risk leaving it out of your camera bag for the next trip. What I decided was I wanted one of the cheapest batteries possible so that someone could throw two or three extra batteries in there. Uh, At the time we made it, these batteries were costing about 50 cents a piece. It's an A23 battery. It's the kind you use for a garage remote control. And um, this way, a battery, it lasts a few hours, and if uh, if you're done with it, you can just flip it out at very, very minimal cro- cost, but it's always in your bag, so you'll be able to use it. I wanted to make one other point about that two-to-one ratio, going back to the Kickstarter that was very important. At the outset, we had no idea of how many of each model to make. Kickstarter allowed us to get those numbers because we offered both models on the same Kickstarter and we were able to see how many of each people wanted. There was almost no way for us to do that kind of research uh, on a large basis. And Kickstarter Gate enabled us to do that. So when we placed our first order with the manufacturer, we knew the ratios that we needed. And, and you're talking about major bucks when producing an item like this. Uh, I will tell you the molds alone for Platyball cost us $175,000 just for the molds so this was a a very very expensive uh, endeavor
0: I, I can imagine you know I'm reminded of a uh of a case study in advertising and marketing from Wendy's hamburgers do you have Wendy's where you were yeah, sure. New Jersey yeah. does one. So um, they, uh, at least traditionally, would have a single, a double, and a triple patty burger. And they had realized that their triple patty burger wasn't selling really well. And so they took that off the menu. And then all of a sudden, the sales shifted dramatically. People that would buy the double patty burger are now buying the single. Because you know they they wanted to get the sweet spot of something in between. Right, they they wanted to have uh, a uh, three is too much, one seems too little, two that that's what I'm going to buy. So they reintroduced the triple patty burger, not because they expected to sell many of them, but because they knew that would dramatically increase the sales of the double patty burger, because human <laughs> beings are really strange psychological creatures, and we're hard to figure out until you get some basic information to understand how people are going to react in a scenario. Don, I am proud
1: to say that we at Platypod did not employ any type of psychology tricks <laughs> like that. <laughs> we, we went simply for utility. Um, so you want to hear the design story? That's, uh, I think it's interesting. And this involves my, uh, my friend and advisor, uh, Scott Kelby, uh, who I really look to, uh, for a lot of advice, uh, a lot of advice, um, when developing Platyball. So as I was starting to say before, it began with a lump of Play-Doh. I took this over to an industrial designer and we sat down in the office and said, okay, if we wanted to make a tripod head upside down, with buttons, what would it look like? And we sat there actually shaping balls of Play-Doh, making up up models. Well, he he took that, obviously, to the next few steps and using some 3D design software and combining his work with the work of my engineer um, at that time. uh, They came up with a design, and it's something that probably could have worked. And... On one of my visits down to Florida to be on Scott Kelby's uh, video podcast, The Grid, I showed it to Scott. We looked at this white 3D printed uh, model and Scott held it up this way and held it up that way and said, Larry, I can't sell this. And I said, what's (laughs) wrong, Scott? He said, the thing looks like a toilet, a little miniature (laughs) toilet. And I will hold this up, and people are going to call it the platypotty. <laughs> You've got to oh, come up with a better would have design. Been
0: hilarious! I mean, in a bad way for you—in
1: a very uh... bad way. <laughs> so, so at, at another meeting, he and I sat down. We were actually in Chicago, and he told me a story, and I'll never forget this story. And I think everybody needs to hear this story. Scott told me that he was invited once by Microsoft to Seattle, along with. 14 other CEOs for a meeting on design. I believe it was relating to the uh, Microsoft Surface, but no, no, it wasn't yet for the Surface. It was just using Windows laptops in general, and most of them had Dell and IBM and other types of laptops, Uh, and Scott was the only one with a MacBook at the meeting. All the other executives had their Windows laptops because they figured they're going to see Microsoft. Scott had the audacity to bring his Mac. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> and the, um, the, rep, the the rep the rep at uh, or the executive at Microsoft asked people at the table, "How come we're not selling as well as Scott Kelby's Mac, or how come Mac can charge three thousand dollars for a laptop, and Dell and others can only charge a $1, thousand fifteen hundred for their units? What's going on?" And Scott had the attention of the uh, of the group. And he said, I want all of you to take your laptops and turn them upside down. He turned them upside down. What do you see? You see a label here, a fan opening here, a bunch of screws here, a bunch of screws there. Now, look at my MacBook upside down. What do you see? Nothing. You see clean, sleek beautiful lines. You're trying to sell this to photographers. And that's basically the groups that they were targeting was, was photographers. And you're trying to sell a Windows system to photographers. We're designers. We appreciate beauty. We appreciate fine design. You've got to come up with something that looks cool. And how did this? how did this relate to me? And why did Scott tell me this story? He said, if you're going to put out a new ball head and you want something different and you want me to hold this up on the grid and say, buy this thing, I'm sure technically it'll be fine. It's got to be an item of beauty. It's got to be something that people will look at, salivate over and say, I've got to have that. And I learned so much. So we went back to the drawing board and I told my industrial designer, it was now a uh, a new fellow that I was using, and I said, "I said to him, I want something that's going to be reminiscent of a race car. It does and kind I, of feel like an engine block to me.
0: Was that what you were going for?
1: Engine block, and you look at the racing stripe kind of on it, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and and you see that look. I actually sent some pictures of some some cars that I really that I really liked that had some interesting zigzaggy uh, lines on it, and and you know what? It was an amazing piece of advice because this. When it went on Kickstarter, it grabbed the eye, and that's why we had one model—the first model, the, the elite—was in red. Uh, because, I, I,
0: and I've got that one; it's actually on my production camera uh, right now, uh, set up. After we're done recording this, I've got to do some documentary filming for a, a client of mine, and it's it is my go-to everyday workhorse of a uh, of a ball head.
1: Well, that's and I love the that's ride. the story, and and I you know it, it went from there, and we we're very happy. It was very successful. Uh, we ended up in Kickstarter. the The original design that we had by the time we launched Kickstarter, we were ninety percent of the way there. The problem was, we still I wanted to achieve a a, a ten kilogram or twenty two pound uh, weight capacity. And we were only at about 18 pounds and my design, my uh, engineer assured me he thought he could tweak it and push it up to that 22 limit. And as we got into it, this was already after Kickstarter finished. My engineer says to me, Larry, I can get you three times the hold as we had before, but we're going to have to totally change the gear system and the design of the internals. And it was a very painful decision, and I knew it was going to cost a fortune to do this, but I said to him, I said, Marin, I cannot in good conscience send out an item when I know that I could be sending out something that's so much better. This ended up delaying the, uh, the actual delivery, and all of our other deliveries have been exactly on time. This delivery was delayed an additional 10, 12 months because we totally redesigned the guts of it after Kickstarter was over, tremendous expense, but as you can see, it was worth it. It works really, really well.
0: Well, and I was with you at the Kickstarter launch event at uh, Kelby Studios. That's right. uh, We did it together. We did it together. And um, I remember you being fairly confident that everything was going to be completely on track at that time. That was the message that you were giving. That's the message that you were thinking because obviously without this massive internal redesign, it would have been, uh, and of course, you know, we we were both developing these projects th- through the pandemic, and uh, you know, people not being able to uh, be in facilities at the capacity that once was expected, and, and so on. So there's manufacturing delays and whatnot involved as well. But but I want to I want to give you a compliment on the uh, the because y- you sent me some, and you told me try to break it. Uh, and, and I, I, I took that as a very serious task. So I gave it to my daughter. Um, and, uh, if anything can break something, it's a child, a young child with camera equipment. <laughs> they can, you know, you're it. talking to a pediatrician, so <laughs> I will <Yes>. affirm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the, uh, the idea was, I mean, I, I tried, I really tried to, you know, like I didn't use a hammer, but I hammered on it, so to speak, Um, and nothing would would break. I I even threw it in the freezer and then took it out and tried to use it. And everything was just fine. Then I gave it to my daughter. I didn't see it again for a couple of days. Uh, Then I discovered it outside in the melting snow because she had taken it outside and left it there. And it was still fine. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of stress tests you uh, uh, stress tests you did on your end, Larry, but it certainly passed the child's test. We we actually don' we actually
1: built a robot, and on one of the uh, Kickstarter uh, updates, I posted a video of this robot. It was basically a box frame uh, with pneumatic button pushers, and we put it through. Quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of testing. We pushed those buttons, I think, about one hundred and forty thousand times, and then took it apart. And it's it it only started wearing down at about one hundred and forty seven, one hundred fifty thousand, which was the equivalent use of the average photographer using it for about fifty years. Uh, and we also had another uh, another piston that was going back and forth that was turning the panning head back and forth. And we got that going about 70,000 uh, rota- rotations, 180 degrees each, uh, until some of the uh, silicone started uh, wearing, silicone grease started wearing down a little bit. And that was uh, able to be repaired uh, afterwards. So, yeah, we put it through quite a lot of stress testing. The one person I had, I had two breakages. One person somehow dropped it on its head on concrete and Chipped off a little piece; it still was functional. Chipped off a little piece of the uh, the clamp on the top, and the other was my friend Samantha Kennedy, who I asked her to take this and drop it into the Long Island Sound. Uh, she she put it in about a foot or two of water in uh, salt water in the Long Island Sound. And when it dried out, it really wasn't working well at all. There was salt and silt throughout. She sent it to me. I took it apart completely. I simply rinsed all the parts under the sink cuz everything inside there is uh is rust resistant, uh rust proof actually, and put it back together and it worked perfectly.
0: I mean, salt water destroys anything of relating to camera equipment. So oh, I'm, yeah. I'm amazed that it, you were able to actually fix that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um but uh, briefly before we talk about some other things, you mentioned uh, a couple of times that uh you're you're a doctor, you're a pediatrician. Um a lot of people that know you as the guy behind Platypod don't know that side of your life. So please tell a little bit about what you do during the day when you're not uh, being the uh, the crazy and brilliant inventor. So essentially,
1: um, uh, Sunday through Thursday, uh, I am a full-time pediatrician. Um, I, we're in a uh, a uh, four-physician practice. We have four physicians and a nurse practitioner, very busy practice there will be four of us in the office on any any one day uh right after breakfast i'm either off to the hospital uh to visit uh, some newborns in the hospital uh and then run off to the office and uh, i'm on the run all day long when i come home in the evening after dinner it's platypod time <laughs> and so i arrange uh, shipment shipments to uh to our uh, uh to our resellers uh, especially you know B and H Photo and Amazon, uh, the customer fulfillment is done through a fulfillment center about an hour away uh, from me here in New Jersey. So that's uh, taken care of more automatically. And I will think and design, and sometimes do podcasts like this. And then Fridays I'm off, and Friday is also Platypod Day, so I'll do whatever work needs to be done on it on that day. I confer with Skip Cohen, uh, my CMO. Uh, every single morning, Monday through Friday, and we plan out his tasks for the day and mine. So yes, it's a pretty full day. Uh, we have six of our own children, all married and with children of their own. So we've got a bunch of grandchildren uh, that we'll often see uh, family by family on the weekends. But it's um, it, it's a fairly packed life. And people ask me if I'm ever thinking of retiring, and I cannot imagine what retirement would be like. And I'm not looking for it because I'm having a blast.
0: Yeah, I don't think I will ever retire from what I do either. Um, and it's good to be doing more than one thing. I, I can't, um, I can't relate to people that can go to the same day job day in and day out and do pretty much the exact same thing. I could never be an accountant. You know, it's it's totally uh, not not my vibe, but. And the fact that you are. But, but thank God
1: for accountants
0: because what, how would we, how would I pay my taxes? Oh, I have, I have great accountants. <laughs> they, they save my life. Uh, but uh, at the same time. You know, you are able to very successfully juggle uh, a professional, uh, you know, a a medical job, which is incredibly important. And uh, I'm I'm thrilled that that's a part of uh, of what you do. And but you take that same attention to detail to the platypod space, which I think is really fun. And and that makes me wonder. And I got a question for you here, Um, Don. uh, uh, Don, before you before you you proceed, I I think both of us have to admit this:
1: that you know, behind every great man is a great partner, and I have to thank my my wife, Minna, because I could not get through any of this without her support and watching over the family and everything else that we Truer do. So I'm, I'm sure you're in the same situation. Spoken.
0: Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's- I mean, r- early on, though, uh, when I was uh, hanging out my shingle, as it were, as a, as a photographer, my wife, Desi, she, uh, she was questioning whether or not I could be successful with my crazy ideas. And I would write down on a piece of paper sort of every other month or so say, okay, well, this is the guaranteed income sources. These are the things that I'm expecting. These are some of the long term goals and so on. And yes, that's enough to pay the bills. Um, And after a couple of iterations of that, she basically said, yeah, you know what you're doing. Uh, I mean, she was working too. She's a a registered nurse. Now she's studying for a master's of fine art. So our lives have changed a bit since we moved to Bulgaria. Um, But yeah, you know, to have that person that is uh, very supportive of you responsible, but very supportive, uh, is it makes a huge, huge difference. I wouldn't be able to to do it. And and I'm
1: sorry for interrupting. You were, you were gonna, you were asking me another uh, question.
0: Yeah, no, but, uh, it, it was a good interruption. I appreciate it. But with your attention to detail and you getting all of these wonderful, uh, creative responses to the gadgets that you've made over time, has there ever been, An idea in your head that you thought "Eh, it's just too niche, or it's just too costly, or ick electronics, and then add a couple of zeros onto the price of manufacturing, and and that's going to be not possible. Have you had ideas that you just had to walk away from? Many, (laughs) (laughs) many. (laughs) Listen, uh, you you don't come up with a success without
1: a bunch of failures, and yes, I've had a lot of ideas. The good news is I've gotten better. At figuring out what things work and what things uh, don't work, but listen, if money was unlimited, oh gosh, I would have dozens, <laughs> dozens of of inventions here. But uh, we, yeah, uh, listen,
0: we we have some things coming up also, and uh, I'm very well, excited let's talk about, about that. that um, yeah. Because by the time this airs, uh, your new project will have launched officially. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is to give a bit of attention to this thing. And I, I've, I've been using it, and I have found some quirky use cases that you probably didn't directly consider uh, when you were designing it. And, uh, and here we are. Let's talk about your new device. Tell me about it. The Platypod handle. Um, well, you know what,
1: Don? Le- let me have you describe it. And then I'll I'll explain the
0: intent and and all. Maybe just describe to the people what it looks like and whether or not it was your intention. It looks like a lightsaber handle, uh, and it has definitely
1: my uh, intention.
0: Uh, <laughs> Big Star Wars fan. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's wonderful, and it's got a three eighths uh, mount on the bottom, uh, and uh, I'm not sure how tall that is. It's about the the span of, of ten and a half, inches. Oh, that's, and half sorry, inches. That's I'm sorry, set six and
1: a half inches base base height. Yeah.
0: Right. And, and, then, and then you can spin uh, the, the top part and you can expand this handle to be much taller. So it rises to uh, not, not quite be double its height, but it is uh, a substantial increase above wherever the camera is mounted. And the important thing about that is if you're uh, doing any blogging vlogging and you need to have the camera at a higher point than it would otherwise be at, this is a tool that's perfect for that. But at the very top uh, where your uh, tripod or your camera will mount, it has a series of hard points, eight of them that are 90 degrees from where the camera is going to mount. So in those hard points, you can put in a gooseneck arm or an elbow or anything that could hold a light or a microphone or any other device that you need to have near your camera when you're using it. And uh, uh, I, I'm actually holding a prototype right now because you sent me two of them. The other one, actually, the, the base can separate and it can actually shrink down. Even oh, it, can, it so. can separate on that one, too. Just have to do it hard. Well.
1: Maybe you screwed I don't it up. I not think it, hard. Hard. it can. It, oh, yes, it can. Ah, oh, you wow. got it. There you go. <laughs> so so you let me, <laughs> exp- I'll, I'll explain that for a second. There, there's a few a few points of need that came through that got me uh, to do this. Because, listen, there basically this starts off functioning as a tripod center column extender and you can purchase those on online for you know 40 bucks or something like uh, like that but there's a number of things missing now i remember a photographer several years ago advising me to go with something because you know platypod will get your camera really really low down but what if you want to go to six inches or 10 inches, plus your tripod head is another, like, maybe 15 inches up? What if you want to do that? So this photographer said to me, you know what? Back in the 90s, I had a product who was a sports photographer. I had a product called Exposer. And all the sports photographers, we were all using this because you could put a little tripod um, on, top of a, um, on top of a dugout, for example, at a baseball game. And it would rise up, and it was a series of cups that you could stack one on top of each other so you could get different level risers. And I said, you know what? I could do something like this, but with a lot better design, a lot cooler design, and really not all that expensive. So we decided to make this center column in a way that it could break down. First of all, the base of it, if you've noticed, is uh, ARCA compatible, it is a, a very similar design. To our ARCA disc. So you could mount this on top of any ARCA clamp, ARCA uh, tripod head as a quick right, so release. You don't
0: need to use the, uh, the 3-8 connector. So
1: there is the and there is a th- right. There's a there 3-8-inch socket there. It. Right. The 3-8 inch socket is if you want to mount this directly to your uh tripod uh spider, as it were. That's the, uh, the the joint that holds everything together on the tripod. Um, or you could put this on a platypod. Now imagine you want to take a picture in the snow and the snow is about eight inches high and you'd like to plant your camera there. But if you put this on a platypod or even on a platypod with a ball head, it's going to sink right in. Now you could put this down, raise up the handle to 10 inches. You're above the snow. You put your tripod head on that and then you go ahead and you're able to film or to take images with the uh, with that in in place and you don't have to carry a full tripod with you this will just slip into a pocket in your in your camera bag now the eight points that you were talking about are all industry standard one quarter inch dash 20 uh, threaded sockets so anything that you have that is a quarter 20 male uh, screw will screw into this so like you said uh, goosenecks, elbows, which we supply from Platypod, or you can get uh, similar items elsewhere, they'll go into here. So I will hold lights with this. I will hold microphones. I can hold um, monitors with them. Uh, some of you videographers are using tamos Ninja-type monitors for recording and for monitoring. That'll all go in on one single unit that you can then pick up on a Platypod, or Just transfer it over to a tripod. And if you want to go lower, you just break it apart. You transfer the cap of it down to the lower base. and Now you have just a three inch riser, which is great for food photography, other things. And we've shown that now you can take two of these. Imagine this. You take one of these vertically. You then put a ball head on top of it. Then turn that ball head 90 degrees sideways and put your camera at the end of that. You can clamp your platypod or just put it on top of a tripod. You now have a boom arm that you can do overhead photography with, which is great for food photographers wanting to take an overhead picture of the plate of the plated food and uh, not have people tripping over a tripod in the restaurant. You just take a little clamp or whatever, clamp it to the side of the table, and you'll be able to support your camera of almost
0: any weight. Uh, I'll give you another simple use case before I get to a more complex one that I'm fond of. Um, But I, I like to use the Peak Design Travel Tripod. It's uh, supportive enough of my camera gear. That's what the uh, Platobol Elite is currently attached to. They have a little adapter. Uh, and uh, And so that goes with me just about anywhere. I don't need a bigger tripod. I don't have really big, heavy telephoto lenses, so that's fine. But if I was in the field with that tripod fully extended and the center column fully up, I might need it to get higher. It's, I mean, it's not designed as a big, bulky tripod that can get to seven feet tall uh, without assistance. And so having this will give you the extra height for people like me that want to travel light in terms of the tripod gear. And you just can uh, raise the camera up a little bit further in that scenario. But, but those eight hard points, I, I saw the design and I immediately got to thinking that. You know, for some of the weird, mad scientist stuff that I do, um, I use a lot of ultraviolet lights and, uh, you know, natural things fluoresce. A lot of biological things, a lot of minerals, uh, things fluoresce. And it can be really quite beautiful. But some things that are very beautifully fluorescent are very dimly fluorescent. And I, I'm always trying to, like, attach, you know, four or five different ultraviolet lights, uh, usually at least three, Uh, in uh, at very close proximity to the subject so that it's almost within the frame, but not interfering with the subject because, you know, I, the inverse square law, and I could talk about how you want to get them as close as possible because it dramatically improves the intensity. So they need to be close. So I saw these hard points and I thought, what if I, what if I plug in eight gooseneck arms? I could use elbows too, but I got the goosenecks. Um, eight gooseneck arms with a uh, uh, little crab clamps, the super mini clamps um, uh, that are holding the flashlights and all pointing in towards the middle so that I would have a universally smooth exposure of ultraviolet light to the subject and, And it works absolutely wonderful for that. Now, and heck, this could be even like put on a bunch of Loom cubes or whatever, and have like a completely smooth circular light source for product photography or anything else like that. You know, you can adapt that to your own persuasions. Um, And I've even because it has the uh, the three eighths hole on the bottom, I can mount that on a rotational platform that I have from Cognosys that makes the stack shot. And that's a focus stacking rail, but they also have a rotational platform used for photogrammetry. And uh, so that rotational platform allows me to have this completely perfectly centered, spinning around while the camera is static and the lights move with the subject, which is what I'm currently using for some documentary filmmaking. And without this particular tool, what I am accomplishing right now would be darn near impossible. So, uh, again, Larry, you didn't design this for me, but I'm finding creative ways to use it. Don, I'm going to argue with you. I did design it for you.
1: <laughs> and I designed it for photographers like you. This is, look, number one, this is a great vlogger's tool. You want to you stick a, uh, a, a nice, uh, and I'm not just talking about just uh, your iPhone, although iPhone's not bad for it. You want to put a, um, a, let's say, a Lumix or a, or a Sony or a n- nice video camera. Uh, on here and attach lights to it and attach a a self monitor to it and just pick this up and walk around you can do that and you don't need a heavy gimbal you'll still have some good stability you could set this on a table at eye height and one of the beautiful features of this is if you just put one of our little disc adapters on top of the three-eighth inch um, bolt at the top of it you can simply set this down on a table raise it to eye level and just use it as a as a uh, a webcam right in front of you. And then you want to pick it up and walk around the room, you can do that. But getting back to you, Don, and for macro <laughs> food, we have toy photographers who love using stuff like this. What this does is as opposed to the platypod, which was a great tool, and you could put goosenecks into a platypod and raise it up. But now with the camera raised up 10 inches and your gooseneck up at 10 inches, now you're only side to side with your camera. If you want to get up above that, having those hard points, those quarter-inch sockets, right below the camera, now lets you take the lights and get them above the camera very, very easily, because it it raises all of those attachments right to the level of the camera. So yes, I did create it for you, because it's perfect. For photographers, this is really great, and it's going to become
0: essential I think for macro photography and I'm all for repurposing equipment like to have one piece of gear that can serve multiple purposes because if I'm taking it into the field I don't want to have any repetition in the equipment that I have so if I had something like this what happened if I screwed in a weight on the bottom of it then that is a counterbalance for holding this for video Right, and that's Correct. going to function exactly as a stabilizing unit, uh, and so I- I'm sure that there will be use cases that will come up that uh, that will expand our ideas of what people could utilize. It Don, for. I'll make I'll make that very simple. If you put this on a platypod, and now the platypod extreme has so
1: many attachment points for carabiners, you just hook a carabiner onto the uh, platypod at the bottom, and just put any kind of counterweight on that, and basically you have a steady cam in your hand just a simple easy cheap rig for a steady cam and uh if you want to talk for a second about the uh the kickstarter that
0: we're running now yeah so uh uh what are the dates and what what is the cost
1: so the kickstarter launch is as of now scheduled for April 26th which will probably be in the past by the time this has aired we're going to be going till the end of May May uh i think 31st uh, the cost The list price of this is going to be sixty nine dollars on Kickstarter. You'll be able to get this as inexpensive as forty nine dollars plus shipping. We do have for people who don't have platypods or platyballs. We do have some. We will have some bundle packages that you can uh, look at. But essentially, if all you want is just the handle, forty nine dollars on Kickstarter. And once Kickstarter is over, it will go up to sixty nine dollars, which is still, I think, a very fair price. But we want to thank and uh, and support our Kickstarter supporters to help for helping us get this off the ground, and that's what Kickstarter does. Because I could not come up with the initial, you know, production money myself to get this rolling. Kickstarter enables us
0: to do that. And I, I've been there too. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to produce a book um, unless I had a number of guaranteed sales because you've got to produce them in a high enough volume to get the unit cost lower. And if you, if you, that, that only works if you're going to sell the ones that you order and uh and so you know you've got to get that return on the investment and kickstarter is a great way to do that and i encourage everybody to support um platypod on on this product and all of the stuff that uh that you're doing i mean uh sometimes it's the little things that come out like the 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 clamps and the elbows and uh you're not necessarily going to do a kickstarter for something like that the industry has a lot of those things but you vet those designs and you make modifications to those designs like when I remember when you were coming out with the the, the goose uh, You had them custom made so that you could attach multiple together, and right. you stack. You over yeah. You over engineer them in such a wonderful way because. Um, you actually, you made one of the, um, uh, the quarter 20, uh, adapters removable, but in order so that nobody would lose it, you could screw it onto the side of the gooseneck so that it's it would a parking have spot. A, a resting spot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that is just, that's what Larry does. He over engineers everything just like he's doing right now, uh, with the handle. But Larry, but before we go, and, and I encourage everybody check out the Kickstarter, uh, please support Platypod. But my my final question to you is about the industry in general, because we've got the big players, right? We've got, you know, Canon and Nikon and Panasonic and Sony and all them. And then you've got little guys like you and Platypod. uh, And you've got a lot of uh, mid-level individuals that all carve out a niche. A lot of it, however, does generally feel derivative at this point in the game. Where do you think the strongest innovation in the industry is going to be coming from you're a part of it but who else is going to be shaking things up in the in the months and years to come
1: that's a very interesting question i think a lot of it will be from people like me but i will encourage them to be cautious to think it out and really think about a would i use this product myself and then show it to your photographer friends and say, is this something that you would want and you would use? Remember what the late Steve Jobs said, get people things they never thought they needed. And once they get those, they can't live without. And that's the kind of products that we're trying to come out with. We're not trying to duplicate or replicate what others have done. As you said, for example, our platypod elbows, there's plenty of elbows. On the market. And I bought some and tried it out with platypod, and they found out that the screws on the elbows <clears throat> were protruding from the bottom of the platypod and they would scratch my table. So I specified to the manufacturer, I want the same kind of elbow. Let's do it at minimal cost so we can keep the cost down for the customer. And all I want you to do is shave down that screw from to 4.5 millimeters so it won't protrude through our five millimeter plate. And that's exactly what they did. And that's why our elbows here are a little bit
0: superior, but it would work with any quarter 20 object. So, uh, well, yeah, I I guess I'm curious to see what the innovation is going to be in the next few years in terms of um, all the artificial intelligence that is currently creating interesting imagery ideas in an artificial space. But how many AI... Uh, algorithms will come up with a use case for a new product, right? It, I, I see these uh, uh, these software systems uh, being not a replacement for our own creativity, but an additive feature to say, okay, I've got this problem. How would I best solve it? And uh, the, the database of human knowledge will come up with say, okay, well, this doesn't exist, but maybe if you make this and and that and, uh, and put this together, then you'll have a solution to that particular problem. So... I think there's a number of angles to this uh, as we move forward, but uh, we move forward with a lightsaber in our hand, I think, <laughs> uh, to, 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 to use that, uh, you know, uh, the, the force of creativity, let's call it. And uh, I, I honestly think, Larry, that what you've done, uh, I, I should ask, when did you first start selling the original Platypod? That would be 2015. So 8 years ago and a bit um and if if we look at if we look at that time frame, what you've done in less than a decade in terms of listening to customers, finding solutions to problems that you know didn't exist, uh, I'm really curious to see what will come next from the mind of Larry Tiefenbrunn. <laughs> and uh, And I thank you for being on this show. This is always fun to get inside the head of an expert, uh, and especially somebody as multi-talented as yourself. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. You're too kind. And uh, i I just appreciate having you as a friend and uh, being here, Don, and being able to have an excellent, intelligent discussion. And I think bottom line is uh, exactly what you're doing. Dialogue, listening to other people. That's such a difficult thing today. People love to talk. Almost nobody wants to listen. And if we just start listening to each other, new ideas will come about. New ideas will emerge. That's where our future is.
0: That is well said. I don't think I could finalize the conversation any better than that. Thank you so much, Larry. And thank you to everybody listening to this episode of Inside the Lens. And now it's time to get out and shoot.